So our greatest doubts, our greatest doubts are rarely intellectual. When I was in seminary, um, there's this new theological movement that was making waves among the students and faculty. And here's the thing about theology. I don't know if you know this. It's, it's not like technology or like a new pair of pants. Like saying something's new isn't always a compliment. So like if you can't find something, the root of it, at least the seed of it in Scripture, if it's truly something new, well, we have a word for that. It's called heresy. <laughs> And so this new movement came out called open theism. And um, to, to greatly, greatly oversimplify it, it's the idea that um, God knows everything that really is or exists. But since the future is possibility, um, he doesn't necessarily know or determine the future. That is the, the thumbnail sketch of open theism. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know something's wrong with that. This is, I believe the theological word is dumb. <laughs> yes, that's just dumb. Like it, it, it plainly um, contradicts the, the teaching of Scripture, Isaiah 41, and on and on and on. Um, it's a misunderstanding of who God is. What's his name? I am. Right? You're, you're putting God within the constraints of time and space. It, like the whole thing falls apart. So I heard about this new movement called open theism, and I did what any young theology student might do in that case. I openly mocked it and made sure everyone knew how stupid it was. And then I personally met one of the uh, leading theologians in the movement. And we sat down, he shared some of his personal story. And do you know what made him question? whether God actually knew and determined the future, it wasn't Bible study. It wasn't philosophical reflection. It wasn't intellectual or academic. It was personal. His wife, his godly, beautiful wife, love of his life, got cancer. And he had to walk with her. She suffered for years and then finally died. And I heard that, it's like, oh. So in that moment, I realized that this was not some heretic I was looking at who was seeking to dismantle the Christian faith, that he was a man who was deeply wounded. He was struggling with, how do I cling to God in this evil life, in this evil world? How do I cling to the goodness of God? And, and I realized that he was still wrong. He was wrong, but he was wrong for all the right reasons. He just wanted to cling to the goodness of God. So over the past few decades, this idea that our greatest doubts are rarely intellectual, I've heard this story again and again and again. I've heard it in our church um, more times than I care to count, actually. Someone, you know, grows up in church, they go to church, they learn all the lessons, they have all the knowledge, but then something smashes into their life, some evil thing, abuse, unemployment, Pain, suffering, an accident, divorce, relational ruptures, rejection. Something terrible happens. And then something at that point, so for some reason, all the things that they learned growing up, they're tested. And they don't necessarily make sense. It forces them to ask questions they never asked before. Like, how could God know the future and still let my wife suffer? And when that hits them, something cracks. Cracks in their faith. So have you guys ever split wood? Most of you haven't. Looking at you. Uh, you know, you take a log, and the first thing you do is you take the axe, and you, 
you, you make a crack in it. It just needs one crack, and then a fairly large crack, and then you take the wedge, and, and you don't keep just axing at it. You take the wedge, and then you hammer the wedge in, right? And the wedge, with, if, if you know where to place it, if the crack is good, that wedge just sinks in further until finally the whole thing just splits in two. Pain, suffering, rejection, evil cracks us open. And if we don't do anything about it, if we just let the world do what it does, it's going to put a wedge that drives into our soul again and again the separation between us and God. Like, how could God allow this? Whack! Like, how could God know this and not do anything about it? Whack! Like, how could God be good and still let this happen? Either God is good and not in control, or God is evil and in control. This, uh, this is a question that comes again and again, and I, I just want to say, a lot of you, I already know you're cracked. Like, you came in here, and you have already been cracked by evil in your life. And I, I want to say up front, I've, I've moved past my young theology student phase. I'm not here to make you look dumb. I'm not here to beat you over the head. Um, if you've personally experienced great evil, I don't want to pretend like I can just give you the right answer and be like, that's that. Like, it's a lot harder than that. These are deep things, as deep as it goes in the human soul. And so I, I, I want to admit that while it's possible to be wrong for all the right reasons, it's also possible to be right for all the right reasons, or wrong reasons. And I don't want to be right for all the wrong reasons today. Like, my hope today is not that you come out the, out the door and you're like, I now have all the answers. I've got the right answers. My hope is that you come out the door and you're like, I'm right with God. I'm right with God. I'm going to get right with others. I'm right with God. That's the difference. So in that spirit, I do have a favor to ask, and this is kind of a big ask. So I know a lot of you come in here carrying like these big pains, these big things you've suffered, the things you might be currently suffering. And I I just want you to ask, not that you ignore it, because that's probably not healthy and that might not even be possible, but that, that when you come to this text, that you try and hear Joseph's pain first. That you hear this story of Joseph's pain and suffering And the evil that happened to him and how he responds to that. And then you interpret your pain, suffering, the evil that's happened to you through Joseph's story. It's a big ask. And I don't know if we can all get there. But that's what I'm going to try and just ask you to step up to today. So so through the eyes of Joseph then, I, I want to see through the eyes of someone who's experienced unspeakable evil and still clings to the goodness of God. Like, how can we cling to God when life is evil? The question for today is going to be this. How can we cling to the goodness and sovereignty of God, the goodness and the sovereignty of God, when life is evil? That's the big question of not just this text, but really the whole Joseph story that's going to come to a a, a finale, a climax today in Genesis chapter 50. So our text for today is Genesis 50, 15 through 21. We're just going to go to the heart of it because um, next week I have to be in Europe. So, otherwise this would be two or three sermons. So, so, so I'm skipping over Genesis 48 and 49. I might come back to it later, though. Really good stories. Joseph, um, Joseph, his father's Jacob. He has 12 sons and a daughter. And, and, and Jacob, he's 
in 48 and 49, he's near the end of his life. He's an old, old man ready to die. He knows he's ready to die. So he calls his sons and he says, I want to do everything I can to pass my faith on to the next generation. I don't want you following God because of me. I want you following God because God is worth it. I don't want you following God because of me. I want you following God because he's worth it, because he's worth it. And he passes on his faith to the next generation and he blesses his children. And the reason I use quotations is if, if you read 49, some of those blessings aren't blessings. And then, and then he dies. He dies. He gets buried up in the promised land in Hebron. And then he's dead. And remember, he's the patriarch of the family. He's not just a dad. He is, he is the patriarch. He's the tribal leader. And he's, he dies. And now there's this big question, this power vacuum. Like, what's going to happen to the family of God which brings us to Genesis 50, starting in verse 15. It reads like this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph, Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Now, let's get in the thinking of these brothers real quick. Do you remember what they did to him? Do you remember what they did to him? We're not talking like, oh, I, I hurt your feelings once. They hated him, hated him, hated him, the text says. And they were going to kill him, but then they decided to sell him into slavery. They ruined 13 years of his life. They, they stole 13 years of his life in slavery in prison. So sometimes they're, they're like, Dad's gone, what's going to happen? So, so sometimes, sometimes our, our behavior is motivated externally. You know what I mean by that? Sometimes what you do is, is dependent on who's watching. So, you're driving down the highway, zipping along, and then you come around a bend and you see a state trooper. What do you do? Sinners. <laughs> That's right, you do. You slow down. Why? Because state troopers are watching. That affects it. Now, I obey all the speed limits and all the laws, right? So, you're, um, you're watching a funny TV show, and you're sitting there, and it's funny, a little bit trashy, a little off-color, but you're, it's funny. The kids come piling in. What do you do? You flip the channel, don't you? Yeah, because when the kids are watching, it changes your behavior. My favorite is the, uh, the funny mom moment. I can make fun of moms because it's Father's Day. Um, it's the mo- mom moment where she's like breathing fire upon the children. <laughs> like, I will ground you for life. And then she, they answer the phone and they're like, hey, how are you? Yeah, I'm great. Like it's just the same person. <laughs> so sometimes our behaviors are externally motivated. And the brothers are like, hey, is Joseph, does he really forgive us? Or is this just, is he just being nice because dad was around? Dad was watching, he was nice. But what's going to happen now that dad's gone? Is this, how deep does this forgiveness go? Is this real? Is this for real? Now remember, that was 17 years ago at this point. 17 years ago, he said, I forgive you. He, he said, move into my country. And he blessed them. He blessed them. He blessed them. But even after 17 years of proving it, 17 years of living it out, they still have trouble believing that they could be really forgiven for what they've done. Even after 17 years, they still have trouble believing that he could bless them after they cursed him. Because it's hard to believe you can be forgiven. And it's hard to believe that someone could bless you when you don't deserve it. Even after 17 years. Some of you need to hear that today. Verse 16. 
So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants, uh, the servants of God, your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Joseph hears this and he weeps. Even with forgiveness, even with real reconciliation, even with grace, grace, grace poured out, the hurt's real, the pain's real, the relationship really does suffer. So he's weeping because, one, he suffered so much. I mean, the reality is no matter if he forgives them or not, he lost 13 years of his life. And he weeps because even after 17 years of living out forgiveness and blessing and grace, he knows that the relationship will never go back to what it was. Never. And so he weeps. Verse 18. His brothers came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Now, if you remember, they were coming to the very end of the Joseph story. And it's, it's going to give us this very intentional arc from it. It's going to end just where it began. Like when we see this, we're reminded. Joseph is reminded of how this whole thing started. This whole thing started with a God-given dream. That God showed up to this boy named Joseph and said, Hey, I've got this dream for you. It's a vision of what I'm going to do. That your brothers someday, they're going to bow down to you. And so as we come to the end of this, we see that this whole thing, this whole thing, we're reminded that all of it, that their betrayal, 13 years in slavery in prison, the famine, the death of his mother, the death of his father, the whole thing was part of God's plan from the beginning. And then in these next three verses, we are going to come not just to the, the meat of this text, but the meat of the entire Joseph story. We're going to come to the very heart of it. Like these three verses, 19, 20, 21, they are going to make sense of the last 39 years of Joseph's life. These three verses are going to unpack why. Why, when evil smashed into his life, why didn't he crack? How does Joseph cling to the goodness and the sovereignty of God in the midst of such terrible evil? Watch this, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? So, so how does Joseph cling to the goodness and to the sovereignty of God in the midst of such evil? And, and it's really very simple. He refuses to put himself in the place of God. He refuses to put himself in the place of God. Putting yourself in the place of God is the original temptation. So what does the servant say? He says, um, did God really say you can't eat from any tree? I mean, what a terrible God. He's terrible. Like, he just wants to control you. He doesn't want you to have any joy. He doesn't want you to experience freedom or life. You know if you eat from that one tree, you know if you eat from it, you will become like him. You can't trust God for what's good. You've got to take it for yourself. You've got to be like God. You've got to take the place of God and decide what's right and wrong for you. Putting yourself in the place of God as the promise of power. It's the promise of controlling your own life, of defining what's good for you, of the, taking the life that, you ever, that you've always wanted. But, 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 if you believe that lie, if you bite from that apple, if you put yourself in the place of God, it does not end in life, does it? It ends in death. It's a lie. You do not become more like God by putting yourself in his place. 
ironically, you become more like God by refusing to put yourself in His place, by putting others first, by giving your life away. So there's a pastor, author, Tim Keller, in one of his lectures, um, wrote this down a while back. He, he, he says this, he summarizes it this way. The fastest way to become like Satan is to put yourself in the place of God. The fastest way to become godly is to refuse to put yourself in the place of God. Do you see it? It's, it's not, not grasping it, not taking it for yourself. That is what makes you more godly. If you take it for yourself, that's the first thing that makes you less like God, not more like God. And Joseph, he gets this. I mean, ironically, he asked that question, am I in the place of God? And his brothers could have been kind of like, yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah, kind of. Like, you're, you're big, you're powerful, you can, he, with a word, he can execute judgment, he could have them killed. He's got the power over life and death of them. So in some ways, and so this, this fact that he's in a place of power, he can execute judgment, he could kill them if he wanted to, and he doesn't, that's what makes Joseph's answer the fact that he refuses to put himself in the place of God, that's what it makes it so beautiful. The man has options. He doesn't have to forgive them. But he sets aside his rights, his privilege, his power, and he entrusts himself entirely to God. He entrusts God with all of his hurts and all of his pain and all the evil that they did to him. He says, God, you're going to handle this. I'm not going to take it for myself. I'm not going to grasp for that. And that, rather than demand for justice, he demands grace. He calls for grace. He calls for grace. That right there is what it looks like to be like God. So this might sound familiar. Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Yes, that's what it looks like to be like Jesus. You don't grasp for it. You don't put yourself in the place of God. And when we cling to that, when we cling to, um, when we, yeah, how can we cling to God's goodness and sovereignty in the face of evil? It really comes down to he refused to put himself in the place of God, and we need to refuse to put ourselves in the place of God. That We need to give that up right from the get-go. And we're going to see in the next verse, though, it's going to explain why this works or how he can trust God with that even when he's not in control. And we see this in verse 20. Oh, let me, let me go back here. Um, so a few years ago, I read Corey Ten Boom's little book called The Hiding Place, reread it. Are you guys familiar with Corey Ten Boom? So she's a woman who, um, Christian, under the Nazi regime, and, uh, and they used to hide Jews and try and keep them safe in the hiding place. And, and then she ends up going to a, a concentration camp and sees unspeakable horrors and yet lives and responds in love to that. And her, I would highly, highly, highly recommend her book, The Hiding Place. Just a beautiful, beautiful picture of what it means to be a Christian in the midst of evil. And um, she has this, this thing where over and over again, as she would see people like drug off to be killed or people starving to death, like terrible things, where these questions, why, Father, why, Father, are you allowing this? How can you know this is happening and not do anything? And, um, and she had a story that she'd go back to again and again. And it was uh, her father. They were, her father was a watchmaker. 
and repairmen. And so they were traveling one time on the train, and he had this really heavy case, one of those old-timey cases, the big ones. It was like 40, 50 pounds and, with him. And, um, and so they're sitting on the train, and she asked a question that was, she doesn't really clarify exactly what it was, but it was something like, how are babies made? Right? And she's just this little girl. And the father looked at her, waited for a minute, and then he, uh, he took his case down off the shelf, set it on the ground, and said, carry that for me. And she goes up to it, and she tries, she struggles, she struggles. She can't move it, though. The case, is just, the case weighs almost as much as she does. And so she, she finally gives up and says, I can't. And he looks at her and says, now, I wouldn't be a very good father if I asked you to carry this for me, would I? There are some things you're just going to have to let me carry for you until you're strong enough. And over and over again, as she saw horrific things later in life, and she would ask, why, why, why? And she didn't know the answers to what God was doing. She would remember, now God wouldn't be a very good father if he gave me something I couldn't carry. And right now, I just need to trust him. That we need to refuse to put ourselves in the place of God and know that he is a good father. Verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So he looks at his brothers and says, am I in the place of God? No, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. That He literally says that intended, says, you planned evil for me, but God planned good. You planned evil for me, but God planned good. So I want you to hear this. Joseph is not saying that God frustrates the plans of evil people, though he does sometimes. Psalm 33. And and Joseph is not saying that God condones evil action. Proverbs 12, 2. He will condemn a man who plans evil. He will condemn a man who plans evil. But Joseph just said that God uses our evil to accomplish his good. Evil. The evil done to you. The evil you have done. God doesn't waste any of it. Our hurt, our pain, our suffering. He will use it for his good purposes. So the question is, is how does Joseph cling to God's goodness and his sovereignty in the face of evil? He declares that God is sovereign over evil. Now, I want you to notice something here. He's not denying evil. He says, he looks at them and says, you planned evil. You did. Like, this is no prosperity gospel. Joseph's not like, oh, if I just follow God, only good things will happen. It'll be like butterflies and cupcakes everywhere. This is not that. He, he, he knows all too well from his own experience that life is evil. Normal life. The life of godly Christian men and women is full of evil. He's not denying anything. He looks at them and says, you planned evil. It wasn't an accident. I'm not sweeping anything under the rug because true forgiveness does not minimize what was done. He says, you are to blame and God is good. You planned evil and God all along was planning to use it for his purposes. God used your evil to accomplish his good. Like this, this doesn't excuse anything. But it reminds him and us that our lives are not determined by evil. Our lives are not determined by an accident. Our lives are not determined by sickness. Our lives are not determined by what other people do to you. Our lives are determined by God alone. 
And if you read through the scriptures, you, you find these examples everywhere. Just not that long ago, we read the story of Judah, right? What's the story? Well, he goes and his wife dies and he decides to get, you know, blasted and go off to the big party town with his non-Christian friends. And he shows up. He's like, hey, there's prostitutes here. Let's do this. And then he sleeps with someone. And then the next morning he's like, he finds out later, not the next morning, much later he finds out, wait a second, that wasn't a prostitute. That was my daughter-in-law. Yee! The whole thing's in in an immoral debacle, right? The whole thing is evil. And yet what happens as we read through the scriptures, we find that that the fruit of their evil union, Perez, becomes the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. It was no accident. It was God's plan all along that God is sovereign over our evil. You read the story of Jesus in the first part of Matthew. You read about King Herod, Herod the Great, self-proclaimed king of Israel. He comes in and he's like, I'm going to stop Jesus. I'm going to stop this, the king of the Jews from being born. So what does he do? He goes into Bethlehem, has all the baby boys slaughtered. They're killed. It's evil, terrible evil. And Matthew looks at that and what does Matthew say? Ah, in, in doing that and plotting against God's plan, he actually fulfilled God's plan. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. And we see, if you read through the book of Matthew, time and again, the more he rages against God's plan, the more he's actually just being used to fulfill God's plan. That God is sovereign over evil. This, uh, this works not just in scriptures, though. This works in our lives. GVF. Um, I hope you're glad to be here. If you're here, you've probably in some way, shape, or form been blessed by GVF. I mean, well, I think we've, we've made some positive differences in the community. Uh, hundreds of people, their lives have been touched or changed in our church. And if you ask, like, how did we get here? How did GVF come about? You say, well, in 1994, it's this beautiful story of a pastor's immorality and a horrible church split. <laughs> Followed by, like, staff infighting, and then the whole thing was funded by someone who was in a Ponzi scheme, and the IRS came after him. They wanted their money back, so they tried to take all the money from the church. Did you know that? Yeah. And then the staff blew up, and there were accusations, and there was a phone tap at one part, and uh, yeah. And then the pastor fell back into immorality, and um, over 700 people left disillusioned. That's what happened, and was it good? Does God condone that? No, it was evil. But did God use it? He did. He's using it now. We wouldn't be here today if that hadn't happened because God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over our evil. Now, this is not secondary or minor teaching. I want you to get this. This is core to the gospel itself. So what is the... the the worst, most tragic, most evil thing that's happened in the history of the world. The Son of Man, he, he shows up on the scene. Son of God shows up on the scene. What do we do? We take him, we nail him to a tree until he dies. That's the most evil thing that's happened in human history. Now, what's the best, most wonderful thing that's happened in human history? Well, the Son of Man came and he was nailed to a tree and died. Do you see that's both? That God uses our evil for his good. Like, that's core, that's absolutely core to the gospel. That it's absolutely evil and it's absolutely God's plan. That it's evil and God used it for good. That it's a declaration once for all on the cross that no evil can undo God's plan. In fact, that's the whole point. He raises three, rises three days later from the grave because not even death can hold him. No evil 
can undo God's plan. God is sovereign over all. And isn't this good news? Like if you're sitting there today and you're thinking about all the people who sinned against you and the way they've, they've done things to you in your life, you can know that you know that God's plan for you was not frustrated. God is sovereign over that. And if you've done terrible things, things that you really, really regret, and you feel like, oh, I've messed up God's plans. Like God wanted this for my life, but I messed it up. You can know that you know that you cannot mess up God's plans. He's sovereign over evil. So how do we cling to the goodness and sovereignty of God in our lives? First, we, we refuse to put ourselves in the place of God. And then the next thing we do is we declare God is sovereign over evil. He's sovereign over my evil. He's sovereign over the evil that was done to me. He's sovereign over evil in the world. God is sovereign. And then the third part is this, verse 21. So then, he says to them, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke to them kindly. So I, I want to hear this. The brothers cursed him and he blessed them. They hated him and he loved them. They betrayed him and he was loyal to them. They, they sold him into slavery and now he says, I'm going to provide for you and your children. They deserve justice. But, but here's the third thing. He's going to declare grace. You're going to get what you don't deserve. I'm going to provide for you. He gives them grace. So how do we cling to the goodness and sovereignty of God in the face of evil? We refuse to put ourselves in God's place. We declare God as sovereign over evil. And then the third is this. We experience God's grace by giving grace to others. We experience God's grace by living it out. By living in God's grace. How do you do what Joseph just did? How do you love someone who's hurt you? I mean, all of us right now, you can probably think in your mind someone who's done truly evil things either to you or to someone you love. How do you then turn around and love the person who's hated you, bless the person who's cursed you, give them not justice, but give them what they don't deserve? In some ways, just humanly speaking, it's impossible. It's impossible unless you've been personally changed by grace, unless you've personally received that kind of grace, unless you've personally been changed by God's grace. So do you know the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? Do you know what God has done for you? So the gospel... Is that while you were still in your sins, God loved you. While you were his enemies, he sent his son to die for you. When you cursed him, he blessed you. When you hated him, he loved you. And when you betray him, when you're faithless, he will remain faithful. He will not disown you. And because we've experienced God's love, God's grace in Christ... Because of that, that gives us the power, that gives us the potential, that gives us a new opportunity. When grace comes into our life, it gives us an opportunity to do something we could never do before. That we can now show grace to those who do not deserve it. Because of Christ, because I've experienced God's grace, I can refuse to put 
myself in God's place. I can declare God as sovereign over evil. I can experience God's grace by giving it to others. Like those are the three things that we see in Joseph's lives that so pour, powerfully pour out that actually changes reality, creates a new opportunity for the people of God that they, they all deserve death. All the people of God deserve death. But he steps in the way and says, I'm going to give you what you do not deserve. Does that remind you of anything? Does that remind you? This is the gospel. Joseph is not about Joseph. He's about Christ. He's pointing us to the one. If you've never taken that step today, if you've never experienced grace, if you've never known, like how, if you've only known, oh, someone will love me if I do good to them. Can I just tell you right now, it's available to you. And it's as simple as a prayer. It's as simple as crying out to God. God, I I want that I want your approval. And I know that I can't earn it, but because of what Jesus did, I, I, I want to receive that by faith. I want to know that I know that you love me, that you've forgiven me, that even when I've cursed you, you've blessed me. That's the gospel. It's that simple. When, when we apply this, I want to think of two crowds here today. On the one hand, I know that so many of us fall into the crowd of we're, we're like Joseph, Meaning that we've been deeply wounded, that we have past sins, that people have done terrible things to us. People have intentionally done evil to us. People have planned and plotted evil against us. And I just want to ask, what's our first step? Like, if you see what Joseph did, these, these three things that he did in order to be forgiving and to live in that and to cling to God's sovereignty and goodness, what's our first step? And I, I just want to say the first step is make sure you start small. Forgiveness goes as deep as the human heart can go. It goes, it, it'll go to the bottom of your soul. So I don't want to minimize this and pretend like you can come out and just be like, oh, your wife died of cancer. No problem. Just say God's sovereign over evil and it's going to be done. It's not that simple. I, I get it. So start small. Don't go out this week and try and do everything Joseph did. Like it took him 39 years to get to this point. 39 Start small. How can you bless someone who's done evil to you? How can you show them love? How can you turn the other cheek? How can you go the extra mile? When they, when they, when they take something from you, how can you give them your cloak as well? How can we do that? And I want to say, start small. But here's the second half of that. Start somewhere. So it's so easy to be like, yes, I need to start small. I want to protect myself. I don't want to put myself out there because they could still hurt me. And they might still hurt you, right? So you get to say, oh, I, it's easy to just say, I'm, I'll do that later. I have 39 years to work on this. I just want to encourage you that this week, if you do nothing else, start somewhere. Because uh, can I just say that if, um, if you're wounded, if you're cracked, and you do nothing, the world will put a wedge in your soul every time something evil comes by, every time something else hits that, it's going to whack itself and trying to put a split between you and God. So can I, can I make just a suggestion? A great place to start is Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Can you commit to praying for that person? I'm not saying you've got to love them in your heart hearts. Can you commit to praying for them and praying a blessing over them? Just daily. Pray for those who've done evil to you and see if God doesn't use that. See if, if, if in praying for them, God doesn't start to heal your heart and see if God doesn't start to lead you into freedom and life.
So right now, I just want you to think, take five seconds, who should I be praying for? Like, who do I harbor vengeance against? Who, who should I be praying for so that I can be more like Joseph, more like Jesus, more like God? So some of you relate to Joseph and some of you relate to the brothers. You got a past. Some of you are sketchy. Some of you struggle to believe that God could truly forgive you. Some of you feel like you've ruined his plans for your life. And I just want to speak the good news over you that we live by faith. Your sins, they really are evil. You really are to blame. There really is no excuse for them. You deserve death. But God, but God is sovereign over your evil. You didn't ruin his plans. He loved you anyway. He sent his son to die in your place. And though you, your sins nailed him to the cross, he rose from the dead, conquering even the most evil we could do to him. He is not dead. He is alive. He does not call us to walk in guilt, shame, and fear. He does not give you what you deserve. He gives you grace. If you're struggling to receive the grace of God, I, I, and struggling to believe that God could forgive you, struggling to believe that God could give you what you don't deserve, can I just say the first best step is to do this. Experience God's grace by giving grace to others. Who, who in your life can you look around and say, hey, they do not deserve this, but I, I'm going to bless them. When they curse, I'm going to bless them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to go over and above, and I'm going to do things that overcome the evil in this world with God's blessing, because that's the place of the gospel. That is how God heals. That is God how God reconciles all things to himself. That's how God redeems. That is the power of resurrection, that God overcomes our evil with good. Church, we can be changed by the grace of God, so that a world that is cracked with evil can be healed with grace. Who should you be blessing? What relationships are seeding? Who should you be praying for? Do you need to receive the forgiveness of God? Do you need to confess today? Today, God, I've never accepted your grace. But today I'm going to accept what Jesus Christ did on the cross for me. And I'm going to let go of trying to earn my own forgiveness. I'm going to believe what God actually says about me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of Joseph. For your goodness to us. God, I, I, I pray for those who are here today who've been um, cracked open by evil in their lives. I pray, Lord, specifically that you would... You would surround them with people who speak of your grace into their ears and, and into their hearts. God, I pray that you give them the strength to be weak and lean on you to carry the things that they cannot carry. And I pray, God, that you would, you would put in their minds the people that you want them to be praying for, to be blessing. God, I pray that we be a people who are marked by loving our enemies. May we be changed by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.